Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Oliver Brown, Ollie as he's more commonly referred to. Born on the Isle of Man, made in the Royal Navy, Oliver joined the Britannia Royal Navy College in 2011 to commission as a welfare officer. Following this, he was selected to navigate mine countermeasure vessels before being selected to command of HMS Puncher and later HMS Explorer. Leaving the sea behind, he became a flag lieutenant to the second sea lord and subsequently assistant military advisor to the first sea lord, but this was then marked the end of his career as a wartime officer. Lieutenant Commander Oliver Brown does not look like an atypical HIV activist, but due to a bike, a bottle and a brick wall, that is what he has grown to become. These things changed his life as he got the diagnosis of HIV through a trial of opt-out testing at a London A&E department. From this to speaking out a year later with the armed forces, with the support of Terence Higgins Trust, he began to speak openly about the challenges of living with HIV. As a result of this, this led to engagement across the Ministry of Defence and wider government. Ultimately, eight months later, Ollie's activism and the work with THT saw the Ministry of Defence remove barriers around PrEP and committed to overturning restrictions on serving officers with HIV, which enabled people living with HIV also to join the armed forces who were on effective treatment and undetectable. So it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by Ollie. He's going to talk us through some of those key challenges that he had, some of it around his diagnosis, and also being a real advocate and activist in his area, and also encouraging the Ministry of Defence to rethink their position on HIV. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the podcast. Um, Oliver, I'm a huge fan of yours and I've been following you on social media for some time now and was absolutely delighted when you said that you would be willing to come on the podcast. So I'm just wondering, and this may be a really tough question to start with, but I'm wondering if you'd be able to share a little bit of your story for our listeners today. 
Absolutely. Um, I was more than happy because um, I've listened to the whole podcast and it's a great um, subject, content and way it's approached. So my story, um, I quite simply say it started um, with a bike, a bottle and a brick wall. Um, three things that changed my life because um, it was um, in October 2019, cycling through London, plastic bottle got caught into my tyre. Um, and ended up um, going into a brick wall. If it wasn't for those three things, and subsequently then going to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, into the A&E, um, and then doing investigations for internal bleeding and other injuries, um, which eventually transpired by coincidence that they were doing an opt-out HIV testing trial, um, I wouldn't have been diagnosed because I'm, I wasn't presenting as this stereotypical, the the the, one, the person that you expect with the characteristics, etc. Um, and I wasn't overly engaged or understanding myself. So at that moment, eventually got the news of I'm HIV um, positive. Three things went through my mind, which was, um, what's my life going to be like? When am I going to die? And do I still have a job? Quite simply, that's because my baseline of knowledge was Rent the Musical. Easiest way to encapsulate where, where my, my knowledge was from. And those first two dealt with rapidly. What's my life going to be like? Well, started off on three tablets a day. I'm now on one tablet a day, which suppresses it, um, suppresses the HIV to undetectable levels, can't, which means I can't pass it on. So that's dealt with. When I'm going to die, well, actually, life expectancy of someone with HIV is on average greater than the national population because the individual is more engaged with their health by nature of the circumstance. The third one, um, and I still remember to this day, Joe, the um, clinician, when I said to her, that, do I still have a job? And she hit the roof because she thought it was a ridiculous idea that I wouldn't. But I was also going, well, but actually, no, it does make sense that I might not. So left the hospital um, and then just started to build from there of, well, I'm actually in London, outside a hospital. I work here. I don't live. I, I sort of live, have a place to live in London, but I have no family. So I contacted a friend um, because I literally stood there scrolling through my phone on the street outside the hospital, just going, right, I want to speak to someone face-to-face. -face. Um, eventually met up with them, and within 48 hours, I told about 15 to 20 people, because my military mentality kicked in, of, right, just deal with it, process it. Um, if people know, it makes life easier. So that was my family, my, my immediate family, they, were, they all knew, um, and my immediate office um, team, um, at the time, I was working for the head of the Navy. Um, so it wasn't a, a, a small, um, slow-paced job. It was busy, long hours. Um, and my line manager was then the person working with me to try and unpick this, do I still have a job? Um, they went and they were conveniently down in Navy Command and spoke to the medical teams there. And they had to get the books out to look up the policy. It's not something that frequently came across anyone's desk. It ultimately transpired that I'd be medically limited deployable, which sounds like a looming sort of title. Um, in practice, 
it eventually turned out that it was a, a tick box exercise to make sure that medication was okay, etc. All these bits, but forever I'd be medically limited deployable, which has a burden on it mentally. It didn't have an impact there and then, but eventually in time, as we do in the military, we change jobs, we rotate. Um, I went. To, I got to the point where I was going on to an operational unit. And all of this sort of coming to terms with my HIV, the whole medically limited deployable and all these aspects had built up. And I got to the point where effectively I, I reached breaking point. Um, I say that I was on board the ship and I'd walk into my, um, my cabin, I'd stare at the wall and I'd just totally break down into tears. But then I'd click my fingers and walk out the door. Nothing wrong had a mask on, did what I needed to do, when sat back in. And, but eventually I realised that the tension between that mask and reality was, was just too, too much. Um, and I think, as with many people um, who speak about um, living with HIV, the mental health burden had, had, had built and built and built. And my HIV had become a tangled ball of, of red string, but so tangled that I didn't even know where the end was to start even start untangling it. So signed off work in sort of the, the civilian terms um, and not to be someone to sit around and just do nothing. Um, I found the um, Terence Higgins Trust um, counselling service and basically started as a service user with the Terence Higgins Trust. Um, that was about one year on from diagnosis, just over one year on from diagnosis. Um, and I went, went through counselling and I came to terms with untangling that red ball of string. Um, but then actually there was this odd fact that I hadn't actually spoken to anyone living with HIV, still by that point, um, let alone anyone living with HIV in the military. Um, so... I ended up going to a stigma and resilience workshop. Um, and whilst they're meeting people virtually living with HIV for the first time, but also realizing that I just have this weird way of looking at life with HIV and, and just, sort of a, oh yeah, and um, sort of approach. And that, that then basically started to give me the confidence of okay actually there's other people here you're you're in a good place and i was working with the uh, royal navy chaplaincy and they turned around to me and said well well why don't you think you know anyone with hiv in the military and how do you find someone if no one talks about something so i realized that someone's got to stand up to be to be identified so others can then sort of connect um but the process wasn't that planned um or that tidy um because i ended up in a, a meeting with the chronic conditions and disabilities and defense network which is ultimately where hiv sits under um i i'd contacted them for sort of support to see if there was anyone else that they knew um, and I got the response of, oh, no, we've not had anyone with HIV before. So, <laughs> so, but still there was support because actually chronic conditions 
still have the same sort of stresses, strains, journey of sort of grief and coming to terms with. Um, but then I was in one of the meetings and I just said it. I have HIV. And it was almost that moment of if it was in a room of people, everyone would have turned and looked. Um, but then they kept followed up and said, well, do you want to do a talk about it? Um, and I thought, why not? <laughs> what better opportunity? Um, so with three weeks notice, I did a crash course with Terence Higgins Trust after asking them, do you have any help? Um, and I effectively, the first time I shared my, my HIV status um, at work to any sort of scale was to over 100 people over 100 people um, on a Zoom call, um, on Teams call, whereby I basically ended up going, I have HIV, so what? Wow. Gosh, that is an amazing, amazing story, Ali. You know, going through that process, educating others and being brave enough and having that courage to to share that with people and not really knowing. It, it sounds like, I mean, I don't know a lot about the military, but not knowing how that would be received as well was a really brave thing to do. I'd almost say I didn't really think about it because if you live your life looking for stigma, one, you'll probably find it, and two, you're probably going to be hiding under a rock trying to avoid it. And stigma is something they have, not me. And I very much say that I don't see stigma, I see an opportunity for education because it's a lack of understanding that makes the stigma. Um, so I, I really don't, don't really don't care. I will go talk to anyone anywhere, um, be they as hostile as they want, um, because yes, everyone's views valid. But what all I want to do is basically reduce the divide so that everyone's included. That's amazing, and I like that idea, that concept of you know um, stigma being a, an opportunity for education and giving people a different frame of reference. And I think you mentioned at the start your own kind of knowledge of HIV was very different. And I think that's something that we see time and time again in HIV care that when people do come in, that they they don't know that why why would you why would you know that things have changed? Yeah, you know I you know my other colleagues in diabetes they tell me that their care change I, I don't know it's not part of my world so it sounds that um based on your experience of being diagnosed as dropped out testing um how, how you know that was it feels like that was quite a shock for you know I guess when you fell off your bike or had that accident you went to a &E, that was probably the last thing you was expecting that day yeah um so they when I was in a &E, they effectively um they had identified when when they were looking for internal bleeding blurring on my lymph nodes um which caused concern because they thought it was the early indications of cancer um, and an immune response. So then I had full body CT, etc., and all of these bit pieces leading up to yes, my lymph nodes were enlarged, which in hindsight makes sense um, because there was a late diagnosis. Um, and I, I, I still sort of laugh to myself when I think about it because the moment that I was told um, that I have HIV which was ultimately as a result of them investigating as to whether I had the early onset of cancer, 
And I just turned around and went, oh, well, at least it's not cancer. But actually, I didn't really understand what the alternative was. Um, but actually, now in hindsight, that is a realistic sort of gratefulness. Because if you gave me a list of conditions of, and basically said pick one, whilst I wouldn't want to be HIV positive, medically, physiologically, it's the least impactful by far. Um, it's mentally and psychologically the, the impact is. I didn't expect the diagnosis. Does anyone? Even if someone feels they have been, been believe they've been, um, potentially had a, a transmission of HIV, I think even they don't expect it. There's that aspect of de denial or sort of rejection of the idea. Um, who goes into a room expecting for a diagnosis? Um, because there's always a hope it's not. Um, no, I, I think you're absolutely right, Ollie. We were talking about this with some students just today about the process of receiving a diagnosis, whatever that diagnosis may be. And you touched upon maybe different conditions. Um, but definitely, I, in my experience of people coming to clinic for tests, um, people come for tests and I guess they're always, there's that hope that maybe it's not, I don't think anybody ever thinks, yeah, this is this is going to be all the, like you said, there's that option there. I think the only time like yourself when I've seen people think, thank God, is when we've had really sick people and they've been through so many services and they think, finally, I've got a diagnosis and I can get the support that I need. And, and like you said, the treatment is amazing. Is there anything as a healthcare professional we can learn from, from that experience about how we can support people when the news may, we know we've talked about this a lot on HIV matters, the news is, um, it, it's, a, it's a change. Um, is there anything, but when it's kind of part of routine care or coming out of the blue, is there anything that we can learn from this to support people effective, more effectively? Don't assume someone's come to terms with it. Um, I've I've met people who are have been diagnosed for 20, 20 odd years. They will peel off the labels off their medication bottles before they get home, um, and basically the only place that they exist, living with HIV, is ultimately in the clinic. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got myself who, within a year of diagnosis well, yeah, just over a year of diagnosis, chose to speak out. There isn't a stereotypical person when it comes to living with HIV. Um, there is a... It, it is the same, same or a similar journey. It's just extended or contracted as to how quickly people go through and or bounce around and process it. Um, but I'd say the biggest piece is always having your back of mind. Is this person being true? Not not just to you, but also to themselves. Um, I I used to say if I was asked, oh, oh, "How are you doing?" Oh yeah, I'm okay. Um, oh, how are you? How are you settling with your medication, etc.? I'd give a, a really short answer, and then I'll tell you about. Um, 
that over 51% of people living with HIV in the world are female, that um, heterosexual diagnosis in the UK um, overtook that of um, homosexual. And I'll just rattle off all these statistics at someone, not talk about me. And actually that was showing that I wasn't okay, but making it look like I was on top of it and in control. So whatever they say, even if they say they're not okay, just think, okay, I'm not okay. Why are they not okay? It's not just a, okay, yep, yeah, I've asked. Um, now let's move on. That's a really, really good point, Ollie. And I think, you know, HIV care, we know from sort of working in the area myself and also the, the talks we've had on the podcast uh, with colleagues as well, you know, the psychological well-being of people that access our clinic is phenomenal and you know i can put some you know statistics in the chat and signpost listeners to further resources on that but i think it is a massive issue within our clinics and we've talked about this before haven't we about the clinic being a safe space for people to really say do you know what i'm not okay and not fear that they're going to be judged by that either you know i have to overly explain why they're not okay so yeah a really really good um there, Ollie. No, never assume that people are okay or that assume knowledge and I guess um, if somebody's been coming to clinic for 20 years we can assume that they know what viral load means, CD4 count means but actually that information may have been given in a time when they just couldn't receive it. Um, so. so you mentioned just there um, there was there's a couple of individuals that I sort of mentored um, and I went in at the beginning assuming oh okay um, I'm, I'm mentoring someone who's been diagnosed for five years. They're going to know X, Y, and Z. Um, but then I was having to explain what a CD4 count was, what what what, what the, the, the two different types of, um, of HIV, um, and reassuring them that no, no, it's it, you don't need to worry about the other one. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and all these various bits of things that I just I I felt even early on at that point was assumed knowledge um you don't well look at hiv care up and down the country um there's 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 hot spots and focuses but actually it's not necessarily routine care in other places um what is the provision who who do, do they even see a specialist Exactly. And I also think about talking about the point about somebody's psychological well-being when they're coming into clinic. So I I know from being somebody, you know, like going to my GP, if I've got a problem or if I'm thinking about something, you can't give me information if I'm plucking up the courage to say to you, my life's falling apart. I'm not, I don't want to know. I'm like, yeah, that's really good. Just, just, just stop talking so I can tell you how I'm feeling. So, yeah, it's a really good way to just recheck in with people as well. Yeah. I still have my the original leaflet I was given on the day I was diagnosed. And at the time I looked at it, I was like, this is ridiculous. Because it's got a pic- cartoon of a dog chasing its tail on the front page. And and it looks like a kiddie's bedtime picture book. It's, um, but now, actually, I look back and go, actually, that's probably the right thing at the time because you are in that state that nothing's going to go in and actually those pictures have stuck in my mind and i've remembered those pictures they were the right level because it is that psychological impact and it's almost to the point that i'd say that 
or every clinic, especially when it comes to dealing with um, giving someone um, their diagnosis, should have that mental health support either on hand, on site, in the building, at, in, within the within the within the hospital, um, because it's almost I say it's something that the the the, the long term future and and sort of the legacy of HIV now is less about the the and pe- people people dying and 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 that aspect of the physical, the long term future and the legacy is going to be that mental health burden, because when do you get to the point that everyone knows HIV is okay. So you're always going to face that until there is no longer anyone living with HIV. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, no, thank you so much for, for sharing that. Listening to Yoli, I can see based on the journey that you've been on and, you know, the way you've kind of been bold and brave and courageous all those amazing things and sharing your your story to help others i'm just wondering what inspired you to to become an activist it's it's, it's one of those things of being an activist it's like well I, I i get out of bed and i just be me um but actually part of the strength of me speaking out was the fact that i was just being me and doing me and no one chooses to be an activist. I don't particularly think that <laughs> you, you you plan it. Um, but what what was the drivers of it? One, quite simply, is I just wanted to make a difference for one person, and that's still been the same the whole way through. If I'm if I'm asked to go do a talk, I don't care if it's to three people sat in the corner of a library or 3,000 people broadcast on TV because it, three people can become nine people, can become 18, and it can just multiply from there. And you don't have to be positive to be an activist or actually what more mean is you don't have to share that you're positive to be an activist. Just challenging the idea of HIV when you hear it incorrectly in certain situations, circumstances, that is activism. And that makes a difference for one other person that you probably won't ever meet. Because how do you not know that when you hear that comment in the workplace and you challenge it without stating your own position, whether it, you, you are or aren't um, actually positive, but there could be someone else sat in that room. It's quite likely if it's a large room, there is someone else sat in that room that either is living with HIV or knows someone that is. And then when they meet them, they're going to have that slightly different attitude because they've heard it in a different circumstance. And it's that you, you don't know where, where things are going to reach. On the World AIDS Day, when the Ministry of Defence announced the policy changes and what I never thought would happen in three to four years happened in six to eight months. Um, and with people being able to join serving with unrestricted um, and, and the rules around PrEP changed. I was contacted from around the world from individuals saying, I'm no longer serving and they are, they're, they're now positive. Not that they want to rejoin because they, they chose to leave for family circumstances, but knowing they can meant a lot to them. 
all the way through to people in uh, foreign countries going, I know I'm not alone. Um, it's just small bits and pieces like that, that just, that, that's the why. Um, and I almost say the only other part is, as I was asked in um, one of my meetings, along with what policy meetings on the way of, why should we do this? Why should we make any change? Um, and I just said, because it's the right thing to do. And that's almost the same reason as to why I became an activist, why I spoke out, because it was the right thing to do, because someone else needs to hear that. Yeah, no, exactly, because it's the right thing to do. And I think I will kind of take that mantra with me after today. So thank you. You mentioned within that, um, we just briefly talked upon it about um, you being a, you, you being really instrumental in changing the policies within the armed forces. That is no mean feat. That is one one organisation. You know, it it defends us. It, you know, it it, it probably it, it feels like a tricky place to navigate. Ollie. So, can you just any insights from that? Obviously, you know, you've you've done amazing, and you know, you give us an insight into that. It was relatively. I don't want to say easy, but. Um, it was relatively manageable, and ultimately, because HIV couldn't have happened to a better person, I I was in the right job, had the the right sort of insight, had had the right experience. That I was, I had a, had a viewpoint from the top of the organisation with links across to the other services. I I knew who to pick up the phone to. And in a hierarchical military organisation, picking up the phone is, or talking to senior people isn't natural. Um, but I just went, what, what can they say? No. Is the, if they say no, at least I know where I stand and then I can carry on. Um, and there were points at which it was just trying to stay ahead of the momentum. Um, because before, before we knew it, defence had effectively... I pulled apart, pulled pulled out all their policies, um, which isn't the easiest thing to read on um, when there's things, to, conversations about cognitive degradation, um, um, body shrapnel, so the likelihood of someone that is um, HIV positive having part of their body fly into an, another individual and then causing it a transmission. Um, through to um, one document I found which couldn't even spell. Um, AIDS, the acronym out because it thought the S was pluralization. And these these documents range from sort of 15, 20 years old through to um, sort of seven, eight years old. But all of that was the other side of U equals U. And that was the bit of that, that was the clear sort of hook. And before I knew it, we had the services on the side. Um, we had the Government Equalities Office in conversation, the all-party parliamentary group. But even up until practically midnight on on World AIDS Day in in 2021, I was still on the phone trying to pull this together because it's a, it's a situation that sits outside of the comfort zone of defence. We take risks in, in some, some ludicrous ways, but also when it comes to medical... We're, we're really quite risk averse. But then to challenge and pick it apart and understand it, whilst also coming to terms with it myself, whilst also playing Whitehall, um, one of the biggest strengths of it all, I've, I later found, was when it, when it was discussed at the um, chiefs of staff, so the head of all the services, 
the penny dropped of the timeline of the, hang on a minute, Ollie was diagnosed then and he worked with us, around us and in the same area as us for 12 months directly after the diagnosis and they didn't know anything. So it wasn't a case of having to prove I'm capable once they knew. They had seen I'm capable and then knew. So it just, it was, that just helped the door open a bit further. And yes, I had to package and sell my way, myself in, in, as a balance sheet of investments through to arguably sort of just a, a campaign piece because ultimately it's, it's the, it's the, U, it's the UK standing up and going, no, we won't stand for this, which is at, which is at odds of, um, nations, um, at the other end of, of the sort of the, the military spectrum that, we won't stand for it. This is where we're, this is how we see things. This is where we're moving forwards. And I always said that it was action about inclusion rather than words, because you can say that you're diverse and inclusive. You can say that everyone can every, everyone can join, but actually you're going a step faster than people would expect you to. And it's reasonable. It's sensible. It's safe. And actually, not doing it is more dangerous because how many people are hiding it? How many people are having the mental health burden? How many people are putting themselves at risk? Um, and all the other other complications individually, um, but also the implications it has on the attitudes of testing. If you knew you could have limitations to your job or as a young person might not be able to have your dream job, not knowing is, our, is, is, is sadly better than knowing. Definitely. And just kind of listening to your story as well. They are the defence service. We, we look for them to take care of us, to, you know, so to kind of even, I, I, like when you were, I was pitching this, you know, like big wall with barbed wire and just to kind of get a little glimpse over that and have so many people with ears willing to listen and think things differently is just a testament to how passionate you are about this. And also listening to your story then, I was just so really proud of people on the other side of that wall, listening and wanting to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, even if that means going against what you said within the military world would be different. Thank you for, for not letting go of that. <laughs> Saying no to me is probably the worst thing to do at times. Yeah. <laughs> no, no gives me some guidelines of where I can work and what I need to do. So, <laughs> so I now know where you stand. We can now work exactly. Yeah, there is. Yeah, we'll just like move round you a little bit. Yeah. talking a little bit Ollie, about mental health and you know I'm a real really passionate about improving mental health and support for people living with HIV but for for everybody really you know it's it's a massive the world's a challenging place to operate as well and I'm just wondering you you know you've obviously been through a lot even just taking aside the personal element to what you've you've managed to achieve that would have been a really, I can imagine, you know, when times when I've kind of tried to stand up and change things, it's, it's a really stressful place um, to be. So I'm just wondering for our listeners, are you able to share any support that you've had that has been helpful either around your diagnosis, living with HIV, anything that you found helpful for you? You know you best. So for me, the more I understood, the, the sort of more comfortable I felt. So work out what's the bit that works for you but then 
as as you sort of move forward and go through things, I thought I understood mental health early on in my sort of almost before I was diagnosed. I was like, oh yeah, no, I, I, I can I can understand it. I've never really experienced it until I then actually experienced mental health, got through it, and then got to the other end and went, ah, yeah, now I I get it until the next time. And then on the third time, I finally gone, no, I don't get it. <laughs> um, I, I, I can openly say I have, I've made, made a difference for one other person, but quite often neglected myself because people talk about um, self-care, people talk about um, counselling, people, all these options, avenues, etc. What works for you? And I worked with the chaplaincy. I've had I've had more conversations about HIV, sexuality, and sex with mem- members of the clergy than than you than you would, you would expect. Because the, the chaplaincy and the military are a wonderful organisation. That they are are um, pastoral support. You get you can just talk to them, um, and they were part of two two camps of the military and. And, and that, that sort of understanding. But try and find those places where your worlds intersect. So the the HIV clinics, they're, they're great places because ultimately, I'd almost say it's a respite trip for an hour or two because it's one place you know for sure that the balance tips. Actually, most of the people around you, actually, in fact, all the people around you pretty much, know about HIV. They don't know about your HIV, but then they're not going to be making assumptions or or asking questions. But then, when when that individual walks out the door, they're then facing the world of that almost that fight or flight, but more so that self stigma. Um, I I I no longer I no longer think about when I when I um, share my status with anyone. Because I found that I was stigmatizing them more than they were going to stigmatize me. I was going, oh, so you're you're X age, so you would have been um, a teenager during um, the eighties, um, so you would have this outlook, and so therefore you're going to think this, 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 and this. N- never worked like that. But I was reinforcing the stigma by expecting something from them. So now I just go, okay, you never know. Just just see how it goes, and. With mental health, I think the one thing I have learned, if you've got to the point of asking for help, you're probably a step or two too late. If you have realised at that point, yeah, you're, you're already sliding. But equally, it's that fine point of being wanting and willing to have support before you've gone, gone too far. And sometimes it I can think of various people that said to me, oh, it's just a case of getting on with it. Yes, but no. It's a case of having purpose, belonging, routine, and structure. There's a difference between that and just getting on with it. Because just getting on with it is packaging it up in the bo- on a box and putting it on the shelf. Um, whereby, at points, I was just getting on with it. I fell apart every time I went home because actually that's where me and the HIV me came back together that I wasn't being able to be this to, to protect myself by being a persona by being by being an image or, or, or 
or basically keeping myself guarded or putting a suit of armor on effectively. And I've found that I almost had like a glass wall between me and the, and the other half of me, or I could see the past me, the future me, but I wasn't in the present. I did a talk on stage and there was various um, sort of high profile celebrities and individuals. I went on stage, did the talk, walked off and was like, yeah, okay. I wasn't present. I wasn't there. I did. I talked about everything I always talked about. But afterwards, everyone went, oh, did you see so-and-so that was there? I was like, no, um, because I wasn't present anymore. And it's almost sort of quite personally unique to me, but it also, I can see the sort of the, the echoes from um, across various people living with HIV of that question of, does that person know? Oh, because because they, they moved their mug to the other side of the table. But actually, no, they just wanted it on the edge, not in the middle. But it doesn't stop you going, oh, but do they know? Or do they think something? Um, and I have it, I walk, I walk through the street and go, oh, I think that person recognised me. But laughably, if someone in the street decides to be aggressive or abusive to me because I'm living with HIV, I'll play on their naivety. Because if I spit at them, they're going to get quite worried. <laughs> um, and you sort of go, well, actually, this whole, whole we are our own worst enemies when it comes to mental health. We're our biggest critics. Definitely. And it, and it sounds very much just listening to there, having a constant hypervigilance, that kind of feeling, and feeling like you're not in the present and that kind of feeling the need to, to protect yourself. Even like, uh, high alert for potentials as well must be really really exhausting and people going going to events and, and meeting people and they're like oh we've met before haven't we and then it's that awkward moment of just give it a pause and they're oh no actually and it's like yeah because i hate going well you may have seen me <laughs> yeah, <it's just laughs> no <laughs> oh gosh yeah i know it, it and and also as well it's kind of you you're the it's easier in some respects for them to remember you because you're on the stage, you're doing the talk, and then you've got hundreds of people. Well, as we're coming towards the end of our time together, Ollie, I'm just wondering, you've, you've done so many amazing things in the time that you've been diagnosed but um and also before that you know you were you were amazing ollie before you're amazing ollie now but i'm just wondering what does the future look like for you are you involved in any projects or plans that you're able to share with our listeners i challenged institutionalized stigma in the military um where else is there institutionalized stigma so simple things of um boxing um through to tattooing through to beauty therapy um, so there's all these bits. Um, there's still some bits in the military, and actually, um, I see. I've, I've always sort of regarded the whole HIV policy piece in the military as a Trojan horse. That what about sexual health? What about sexual health provision? Because it's not just HIV; it's a larger piece. And actually, we weren't quite the pace of where we should have been with HIV policy, and I shone the spotlight on it. Which, which meant that now we've made, created an opportunity for people. What other things are there that we can create an opportunity for? Um, yeah, so effectively, if I find stigma, discrimination, direct or indirect somewhere, um, that's what the future holds. And I don't even limit that to HIV. And um, that is across the board. Um, 
wherever we're looking. Um, that's where I sort of see the, the future is, is in the sort of the, the mass mass sense. Um, yeah, if, if anyone knows of a problem, let me know and I'll, I'll get after it. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And I think listening to that, it feels like we're going to be spending a little bit more time together because I will be signing up to those causes as well. So thank you. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. This is the part of the podcast that I enjoy equally as much as the other part but this is where we get to know you a little bit more so I'm just wondering we've talked a lot about um, kind of mental health but can you share with us something that you do as part of your self-care I'm terrible at self-care <laughs> I think that's the best way to start um, if I don't have enough time the first thing that falls off is one thing that I'm constantly trying to change flow tasks something that I discovered recently one of the chaplains I worked with it said to me once, um, we're called human beings, not human doings. What do you do to be? Oh, yeah, I love it. I try as much as I can just to be. But a flow task is a form of sort of like, it's a meditative task that is repetitive but productive. I always have to be doing something. So if I'm just doing something that doesn't achieve or, or progress or, or make something, I get frustrated. So cross stitch um quite quite usefully cleaning um organizing sorting something that is almost a mindless task just just going through that process um that is one of the sort of the, the my core sort of self-care pieces have randomly bought mini cross stitches and been found on the tube just standing there <laughs> in, in rush hour that sounds amazing i love that you know i i asked that question because i'm particularly poor at some you know some always looking for things to add so i'm gonna try that and i think that's the great thing of flow tasks is um their self-care doesn't necessarily mean you're, you feel like you're taking out of your day it is part of your day so recognize things that are there already um, some people find work relaxing it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that self-care has to be going to a, a, a spa for the day or, or whatever as much as I love to do that um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot going on in the entire day in spa but I'd still be sat there thinking oh but what about this yeah what about my to-do list no I, I really like that idea of what you said I mean I think I definitely talk about with lots of people my biggest self-care is if I know I'm having a really difficult day I make sure I've got something nice for my dinner <laughs> because I just think that I'll look after myself. <laughs> yeah, finish the day off well. That, that's it, yeah. Um, Ollie, can you share with us a book that you've been reading? I have a, a collection of books that are being read. Um, <laughs> there's a pile with, that I've all started. Um, but one thing I do really quite enjoy is hacks. So it's a book condensed into like eight minutes. Um, so yeah, so there's various apps and I find that I really have to be grabbed by a book. Um, like, uh, and I'm currently reading um, Montgomery, uh, General Montgomery's book, which is basically his, his autobiography and his memoirs going through. I was given it by a good friend and it was it was the piece of he he went through a lot of personal mental struggles, and you can see that in his writing, whilst it wasn't recognised and understood. And every now and again, I just pick that up and and work my way through it. Um, but for my hungry mind, 
eight-minute books, get all sorts of wonderful ideas, and just just that opportunity to to be challenged, to to have a different viewpoint, to to think about something differently. I really like those. Like, um, I love reading, and I love the those little apps that you've mentioned as well. So, thank you for sharing. So, our final question, and it's a big one. We started with a big one, so in true HIV matters style, we'll end with a big question. So, this is our magic wand question and i'm hoping in the future i do get a magic wand if time money and resources weren't an issue what would you like to change or seen done differently this question has sort of gone round and round in my head since well since we first start, started talking and, the, and i was like and the podcast i listened to so many one thing i'd like to see changed people to realize quite simply that hiv the clues in the title it affects humans. And that statement that actually time is running out for HIV. We've got until 2030 is the target for no new transmissions. But that only works if all of the population that goes, oh, it doesn't affect me. But that's not just about testing and for healthcare and to the whole fight against HIV. That's so that actually it doesn't affect me. No, you're not then marginalizing people living with HIV and, oh, it doesn't affect me. You're not then marginalising someone who is heterosexual living with HIV. It's actually, I'd probably say those unconventional or traditionally in, in the past, unconventional as, it, as, as, as some would sort of view communities with HIV are met with suspicion, with question, when actually there's some amazing strong individuals because the bottom line is HIV affects humans. And if that could just be plastered on every billboard in the country, it would go start some way of changing attitude to testing, attitude to people who are um, living with HIV, and arguably just open up a conversation of, for goodness sake, men engage with healthcare. It is natural for women. <laughs> it's just the nature of um, the way things work. Um, and that's a, it's just one of those small pieces. It's not just about HIV. It's about more. Don't ignore this little issue, that little issue, because actually, who knows, and everyone can get anything. Definitely. Well, thank you so, so much for that, Ollie. And I really like that, you know, it's it's a condition that affects humans. So let's be human to human. And yeah, so thank you very much for sharing your time and your story with our listeners today. Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.